Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. This week I am here with a very special guest. Uh, His name is Early Jackson. He's the co-host of the Inconvenient Truth podcast, which you may have heard me talk about in a previous episode with my sister Sharice Jackson. Uh, This is her husband, so we're keeping it in the family here. Uh, Early is also the lead life coach and transition specialist with New Direction Coaching Associates. So he wears many hats, uh, a gifted, talented, passionate man. I'm very thankful that you took the time to be on this show, Early. Thank you for being here. Ben, it is absolutely my pleasure. Um, I'm excited to share with you. Sharice had such a great time. I enjoyed that episode so much. I can't wait to dig into some stuff with you here. Absolutely. Let's jump in then. So as we were talking last week about what we might cover in this interview, we kind of discussed briefly our shared trauma backgrounds and the ways in which trauma has impacted our lives. And so as we launch into that topic, I'm wondering if you can just share with the audience or whomever's listening how trauma has has impacted and shaped your life. Where has it come up for you? Wow. Um, I'll start. I'll go back to the beginning just about Ben. Um, I was born, my mother in her sixth, beginning her sixth month of pregnancy with me, had complete uh, kidney shutdown failure, um, you know, heart issues. So they did an emergency C-section and they actually were kind of leaning towards, in 1971, they, I didn't have a high rate of uh, mortality at that point being, you know, three months premature. And they were really trying to convince her, hey, you know, just kind of put this kid out of its misery. Um, and abort because if you try to deliver a child this young, uh, it's going to have a myriad of issues and who knows, you know, how, how, how he's going to turn out. Well, uh, she decided to uh, kind of put her trust in something else and say, you know what, let's try to save this child's life. I was born with a pound and seven ounces. And in 1971, it was, you know, spending two and a half months in the NICU was uh, pretty much a death. And they, did, they didn't expect me to come out of that. Um, you know, thank God I did. And from that point on, my mother had this overprotective nature for me, where she would, it it went just from being normal overprotection to uh, somewhat of a dysfunction. And she had some other things going on where I I didn't, you know, I wasn't allowed to play with kids. I wasn't allowed to learn how to swim. She kept me in this very tight uh, bubble because in her mind, you're you're a miracle child and you're super fragile. Um, so it wasn't until I was about eight or nine where I just said, you know what, I'll just run my risk of getting in trouble. I'm going outside and playing with my friends while she's away. And lo and behold, I didn't drop dead. I, you know, the grass didn't kill me. The, you know, right. tackle football <laughs> didn't do that either. Um, but it, it gave way to a deeper issue that my mom was dealing with that we, my, my siblings and I really didn't get to process until after she was gone, you know, after she had passed away. But there were some unstable issues that she, um, kind of passed down. And I believe that a lot of the trauma that we see, particularly in the African-American community, is inherited trauma. It's trauma that we pass down like a, like a legacy from one parent to the other. Uh, whatever their fears, limitations, or, or issues were, they just take those and they roll them right on, right on into the next generation. And what we've tried to do with our kids is really give them a better chance of 
by dealing with our own personal traumas so that they can have a fighting chance of not having it. You know, they're going to have their own race to run. They don't need our baggage on top of that. I think there are genetic or epigenetic studies that, that back up those claims that trauma is encoded in our DNA and then passed down from generation to generation. And so each of us is carrying not only whatever we've experienced, right, but remnants of what previous generations have experienced, which makes healing all the more important. What other experiences brought trauma to the forefront for you as you look back? Yeah, so um, at about 10 years old, my mom and dad decided that they couldn't be married anymore. And mainly because my father, it was discovered my father had a whole nother family in another city. So Mm -hmm. um, he jets and we go from, and and Ben, I want to kind of set the stage. He was doing very well. We were, you know, kind of middle class right there. Uh, At the time I was getting about five bucks a a week for allowance, which was a lot to my cousins, Yeah, you know? And um, we went from visiting the projects and me kind of being this cousin uh, from a nice area that all my cousins like to hang out with to actually moving into the projects because when he moved away, my mother didn't have a skill set. She had been a housewife. She had been, you know, ill most of her adult life. So she didn't have a career to fall back on. And when he left, he took the income with him. So we moved from manicured lawns into the projects. So I went from hanging out with my friends, riding my dirt bike to watching drug sales right on the stoop in front of us and being told that that was normal. And, you know, when you're a kid, uh, you don't know how to process moving backwards. You know, you don't know how to process um, where you had money for this, that, and and everything else going to, you know, being, you know, shamed for having food stamps in the store. So uh, trying to understand all that while dealing with a mother who was, um, you know, she was self-loathing, she was uh, traumatized herself, and she only knew how to communicate in that trauma-based language to me. Right. So um, growing up in that and then just dealing with the, the different economical uh, shift that happened in our family and, and going from thinking we were OK to realizing we are straight dirt poor, you know, right. um, really set the stage for a life of addictions. Um, it opened up some doors for me to get my hands on some things that would I would have to fight late into my 30s to even be free from wow. because I started medicating very early on at the age of about 13, 14 years old, I learned that because my mom had an issue with medications, that if I just said I didn't feel well, I'd get a pill. So that led way to some other areas of my life. And I just, I learned very early that a pill that can help you sleep will help you medicate through the pain that you're experiencing. That's something that I think most people, especially survivors of childhood trauma, have to, to reckon with. There are different ways that we self-medicate though, right? So like personally, I've I've never um, had any issues with uh, addictions to substances, but I noticed um, last year that I was constantly seeking out new experiences, new adventures, something to give me like an emotional high to pick me up out of my depression just enough and keep me stimulated. That way I didn't have to be aware of how depressed I actually was, right? And so it, it, it's a completely different way of being dependent upon something, something external, right? It was always something that I had to do or something I had to find. Um, but it's 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 the same thing. It's to escape the feelings that I don't want to face. And I I think to your point, you said that happened to you into into your thirties. You know, I'm 32, just now discovering some of these more nuanced ways that I do it. But I think most survivors of childhood trauma deal with that at some point in their lives. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And when you when you add on to the um diff- the the degree of difficulty in dealing with childhood trauma with being black, yeah, because 
in in certain circles and there was a time where the school that i got pulled out of right before my dad and mom really split uh it was a predominantly white school and they were starting to see some issues um and they were suggesting um counseling and i came home and i was trying to explain it to my mom the teacher had called i uh, said he's having some issues concentrating and and in the black family back then it was i know how to make him concentrate and i this belt will make him concentrate. <laughs> right right and you know one of the things and i have some incredible friends that are not people of color and they ask me about my childhood and i try to help them understand and digest the fact that when a black child tells their mother back then i need help uh, or i need counseling they would say you're not crazy and that the whole issue of mental health in, in our community is shame based yeah you know where if that means it's a sign of weakness so there was no um, let's find some someone for you to talk to. It was, I'm going to beat you and you're going to act right because, you know, we don't take our our dirty laundry outside of this house. Right. You know, I'm hiding the car at your aunt's house so it won't get repossessed. But we don't talk about that because this is our family and what happens in this house stays in this house. Mm-hmm. And and the other layer to that, I think, is is the history of mistrust that exists between the black community and other communities of color and institutions, right? So like uh, medical professions, medical institutions, whether they're mental health, physical health, they have a pretty long track record of being pretty fucked up to communities of color, right? And so you add add that on and it, it's game over sometimes. Hey, because if I go to this council and I say too much, is DHS going to remove me from the home? Yep. You know, if they find out that last week there were no lights in the house, yep. you know, so there was there. And I realized looking back in hindsight after going through a messy divorce in my 30s uh, and navigating, uh, um, you know, custody and visitation. I look back and I understand that she was doing the best she could with what she had. Yeah. You know, thank God today I have the Internet. I have different um, avenues. I have EAP, you know, all these different um, things that can help undergird uh, a transition. Mm-hmm. Back then, all she had was, you know, some praying mothers from the church and, you know, her hope that next year is going to be a better year. Yeah. So what does it mean for you to also be doing the best that, that you can with what you have? How has that evolved for you over the years in your healing journey? I think that I am... Um, probably over the last three to four years, I'm feeling the weight of responsibility to break that generational curse. To understand that, you know, okay, this is what it was. And I can continue to, you know, propagate that. But I actually, I can't because I have better resources now. You know, so there's, there's this push um, for therapy. There's this push for, um, uh, you know, having honest dialogue and having tough questions. You know, in, in our family, everything was swept under the rug, whether it was, um, you know, uh, trauma, whether it was uh, sexual abuse, whether it was mental abuse, it was all swept under the rug. And during the holidays, we hug, we laugh, and we act like nothing happened. And that's absolutely dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, you know, so now um, I'm able to, you know, have hard conversations with our family and say, okay, you know, it's been a tight week. There's been some attitudes flying. What do we need to do to fix this? So uh, to answer your question, but I believe that what I feel now is the weight to change, mm-hmm. the, the weight of um, the responsibility to be the person that says we can go in a different and a better direction. You said that over the last three or four years, you really began feeling that weight. Was there a pivotal event or a series of events that, that you felt kind of brought that awareness to you or made you begin to experience the, the weight to change? Yeah. 
So there's a quote I love. It said, it's easier to build healthy children than it is to fix broken adults. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, uh, about three, four years ago, as my children got older um, from my first marriage, they began to reach out and to kind of do a checks and balances from the story that they heard about me from their, their birth mother, yeah. only to realize that what they were hearing and what really happened didn't coincide. So that's when I began to really see the impact of us passing on our traumas. And it's something that happens. I, I don't think it's just isolated to the black community, but whenever you add the dynamic of uh, blended families and um, one of the parent uh, figures is bitter, Mm-hmm. They're literally transmitting a, an airborne disease of bitterness day in and day out by the communication that they choose to have with their children. And that was what happened. And it caused a very great rift, you know, this huge divide between me and my children until they got older to say, wait a minute, one plus one is two. It's not five. Yeah. You know, and, and I think the um, hardest part of that then was being patient and waiting because you know you have those opportunity opportunities to take those pot shots and defend yourself but um i you know i just kind of refrained and i waited and i kind of bit the bullet and you know took it for what it was until they started saying wait a minute that that's not true because i just talked to him and you know so so things began to unravel which makes that person even more desperate So, yeah, it was, um, I, I guess you can say about, you know, four years ago on to current, there's just been this, you know, tremendous unraveling where, you know, the kids are coming to, to grips with the fact that, wow, I wasn't told the truth about him. That had to have pained you deeply as a, as a father to, to even be aware of some of the, the mistruths that were, were being shared about you, or at least that your, your children believed. Oh, yeah. You, you know, um. I had gotten very good at smiling in public mm-hmm. and, and I, I morphed a lot of stories because she was, um, my ex-wife was, you know, preventing me from having regular contact with the kids. Okay. So I'd morphed stories of them when they were younger and just made them apply to them as older, you yeah. know, kids, um, even pictures, people would say, Oh, let me see a picture of your kids. And I said, Oh, this is an old one, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, mm-hmm. and I learned how to navigate, um, un, you know, with untruths, honestly, yep. to hide the pain of that, that, that situation and coming home and, you know, being married to Sharice, who's extremely strong, who's extremely verbal, um, you know, I could break down at home and feel comfortable and say, okay, I'm here, this is kind of my refuge and it hurts like hell that I can't just pick up the phone and call my kids without someone else listening on the line. Yeah, you know, as I've uh, navigated... Um my own situation and and I'm adjusting to um, not seeing my son for part of the week because of the visitation schedule. I'm finding that not only is there grief in missing him, um, but that whether he's with me or not, just kind of the idea of him uh, being in my life is is making me see different parts of my childhood and my trauma in new light and like bringing me into new depths of of healing or at least the potential for healing have you experienced something similar as a father you know um i went through this journey with my own dad mm. um because of what i was going through you know going through a divorce and, and it's funny hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, you know, when you're nine, 10 years old and your mother say your dad's a horrible person, she is the biggest figure in your life. You know, she's the first woman you learn to trust. So you wouldn't think that you, you don't even see that parent parental figure as someone who could have flaws. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. So um, when I when my dad and I were estranged, um, I went through the military, and you know, ironically enough, when I remarried um, to Cherise, one of the things that she began to talk to me about was reconciling with my dad. And I had all these other male figures that I had propped them uh, propped up in my life as mentors and you know you know sages and savants that were speaking into my life. And I said, I don't need it. I don't need him. And mm-hmm. you absolutely do. Mm-hmm. My he is the predominant um, you know uh, uh, progenitor of my DNA. So I needed him. So when I walked in the room, um, I was walking in um, to let him know, hey, I'm dealing with a woman who's angry at me, and she's telling my children something about me that isn't true. I get it now. Mm-hmm. You know, we walked in and I was expecting I had practiced. It was a five hour drive. I had practiced my speech. And then all we did was sit there and cry in front of each other. Wow. And uh, I just said, I, all I could get out was, I understand. I understand. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't exonerate you for how you did what you did. Um, but I understand that being with someone who was angry at you made it difficult to have a relationship with me. And it was through the lens of, you know, kind of viewing my kids and what they were experiencing that helped me understand how to relate and make amends with my dad before he passed away. Mm. Mm. Which, which uh, you know, sounds like it was a really cathartic and, and healing experience for you. Absolutely. I got a chance to show him pictures of his grandchildren. He got to meet Cherise. Um, you know, he had switched teams. He was a Redskins fan. Somehow he had become a Cowboys fan. Oh. We, we you know we had issues about that, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, just to understand. And, it, and I, it made me humble. In our conversation last week, we talked about uh, being able to kind of work out your own individual salvation through the process of dealing with your trauma. So I'm wondering for, for you at this phase of your life, are there specific aspects of your story this year that you were really wrestling with? You know, nowadays, uh, because I, I guess it's because a lot of um, uh, CSI shows and, you know, crime scene shows, you understand that the, the, the real crime can't even be addressed until we do an autopsy Yep. to understand the, you know, the, the cause of death. And autopsies, they look real cool in CSI shows, but they're messy. They're very putrid situations um, because you're cutting open and you're digging into things. Mm-hmm. And I believe that in my 40s, I've learned that, you know, it, uh, transformation isn't pretty mm. at all. And when you process things, sometimes you, you're going to process them publicly and it's going to get ugly before it gets better. Mm. Uh, it reminds me of this quote. I, I keep it um, real close to my heart. It says, I will make you strong. Excuse me. I will make you better. But first, I will make you strong. And that's the conversation life has with us. Yeah. We want life to make us better. But it says, first, the first thing I have to do is I have to commit to your, to making you strong, which is dealing with the stuff that's going on in your life. So I think that um, I'm very honest, probably way honest, more honest than people expect sometimes in the general conversation, uh, whether it's about, you know, navigating the, the pitfalls of pornography or, you know, dealing with um, being a, a, you know, a public speaker and a, and a, and a pastor and being on antidepressants, you yep. know, and, and I just, I just spew it out and say, you know, if I have to hide something in order to impress you, I've already lost. And I love that because that is the entire intent behind what was a former blog and is now this podcast is that we all carry around these pieces of ourselves that we feel we have to bury, that we have to hide for reasons X, Y, and Z. When in reality, 
we just need to be brave enough to show them at the appropriate time. And when we can take that risk with each other, I think it opens up a lot of space for mutual healing, uh, at least in, in my experience it has. You know, um, you know, raising kids and watching them and watching their development and, and watching how they navigate new things has always been cathartic for me because it reminds me of my journey. Mm-hmm. So I remember my daughter, she used to have this little tutu that she would wear. And one day in the middle of hanging out with friends, she goes upstairs, she, come back, she comes downstairs, she's got on a tank top and this tutu and nothing else under it. Sure, yeah. And it's, it's sheer. <laughs> so, you know, we're just looking at butt cheeks just running around. Yep. <laughs> and in her mind, this is who I am. And she didn't even have the understanding of why she should have been you know, a little mm-hmm. bit shocked or ashamed. Her freedom really stuck with me because in her mind, this is my tutu and I'm going to get down in this tutu. There was music going on. So she wanted to come downstairs and party. Yep. And, and I think it's funny that the older we get, the more we learn to hide. We spend a lot of our days hiding, <laughs> even even from ourselves. You know, I've, I, in my experience, some of the uh, hardest truths to name haven't been things I've had to name to anyone else but me. You know, and and so it seems like, you know, being seen has to start with me seeing myself, even the parts of myself I don't like, parts that I'm uncomfortable with, truths that I've been subconsciously burying for decades. I think that's the first step of the work. And and often it's the hardest step to get to. So Kanye West has been in the in the news quite a bit here lately. Um, But before his political aspirations and before uh, his gospel album, he put out a, a CD called Yay. Mm-hmm. And there's a song in there where he talks about um, growth and he says, it's all a part of your story, even the scary parts. Yeah. And I think that's what, if we can embrace that, could you imagine the liberation of just um, small social groups? If when one person in that social group gets the guts to, to process and, yep. and do it publicly, yep. it gives, there's this contagious freedom that happens where people say, you know what, if you can do it, I'm willing to go there with you. I believe vulnerable, vulnerability breeds more vulnerability in the people around you in your circle. Man, I'm 100, maybe even 1,000% with that. And while I think a lot of what Kanye has done since that song is questionable at best, there's some deep wisdom in that in that verse, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and and, and I, I appreciate that. Um, and in that spirit, I, I, you know, I'm going to share something because, again, that's the point of this podcast is to to model and inspire others to do the same. So one of the things that has come up for me, um, I was, I do my counseling sessions over lunch at work because that's an, I have that hour block uh, free. And so I was on the phone with my counselor doing a session and what came up was the continued guilt that I still feel at not being able to protect myself and my siblings from the abuse that we experienced as a child. Now, logically, I know I was a little kid, like, there was nothing I could do, but as the oldest child, um, to have to, to watch that, to have to experience it, it was easier, I think, to, to blame myself for not doing more than it was to accept that I was powerless because no one wants to feel powerless ever. Um, and so like that guilt has, has then affected the way that I see future relationships. It is lingering in every experience I have with my son. Um, it, it, it is pervasive. And so now that I can see it, I can do something about it. But I mean, it's taken me 32 years just to see that each and every day I carry around guilt for not being able to protect myself and my siblings from the abuse we experienced in the late 90s, you know, um, and it 
I'll tell you, it sounds like, as I'm saying it, it sounds like a simple thing to see and accept, but even now, that is a hard thing for me to hold, you know, just to admit that that it's not my fault, or even just to name that I still feel guilty over something that logically I shouldn't feel guilty over. That That's some raw stuff right there, you know? Yeah, there's a comedian, Gerard Carmichael, um, funny dude, mm-hmm. and his, his uh, comedy special, Eight, he has this bit where he talks about Jordans. Mm. Where, where, where he starts with he starts with this statement uh he says i buy a lot of cereal and you know there's this long pause and he was like a lot of cereal like so much cereal that you would think that a teacher once told me you'll never have any <laughs> any cereal when you grow up that's how much <laughs> you, you know so um and, and he says it's systemic to his growing up as a child you know, and being on welfare and only having a limited amount of something, mm-hmm. you know, and then he, he th- this segues into Jordans. And he says, when you see a black kid with Jordans on, go give him a hug because every pair of Jordans carries a story. Mm. And, you know, mm. um, I was talking to my son um, and we were talking about where the uh, where the origin of, of even the fear that causes us to lie comes from. And I was real with him. And I said, you know what? I lied as a profession as a kid because it was harder to say my mom doesn't have the money for these sneakers, you know, and, and it's hard to, exp- and, you know, adults say, oh, my God, it doesn't matter. You only got two feet. You only need one pair of sneakers. Well, in their city, you, you try telling that to a kid yeah. um, that's getting dogged out for his mom buying him a pair of fake K-Swiss. Yeah. Oh, man. Eggs and pro wings. Right. So <laughs> I feel it. I you know, get it. I get it. Yeah. And, and, and so I learned at a very early age that if what I perceived was if I wanted people to like me, I had to give them a reason why I didn't have what someone else had. Yeah. And what, you know, what happened then that followed me into my twenties hmm. and I bought in this, I mean, I spent most of my check on clothes mm-hmm. and, and it was like, I was trying to recompense something that happened, uh, a trauma, you know, and, where does the little black kid go with PTSD to get therapy right. when the world tells him to be strong, be tough, and nothing's wrong with you in the first place? Yep. Yep. Or when the world's actively trying to destroy him each and every day. Right. Right. And and so you look at kids in Chicago and, you know, I'm talking about Philadelphia in the early, you know, early 90s. But you look at any, any inner city, um, I can absolutely understand how someone could get involved in something and do some things that are horrific at the age. When I was 15, my cousin handed, we were driving down the street in his uh, cutlass, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> cutlass supreme, right. <laughs> uh, with the, with the baby blue interior. Yeah. And um, this guy cut us off. This group of kids cut us off and he handed me a revolver. And he was like, shoot at him. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, get beside him. Mm-hmm. And we pull up there and I roll out the window, stick my hand out the window, pull, it up, pull the trigger three times, not knowing that um, the firing pin and it was damaged. So it couldn't, it was loaded, but it wouldn't fire. Mm. And what's crazy about it is when I look at that split second decision, my life could have turned out very different with three counts of manslaughter or, yep. you know, second degree murder on my, on my um, record. Yep. Man, that, that just takes me back you're right. A split second decision, something you probably wouldn't even consciously processing. And it all came down to a damaged firing pin, right? Like, <laughs> man, talk about, talk about being watched over, you know, <laughs> real talk. Yeah. Wow. 
and I had um I had a good friend of mine, a white white young lady. She sent me a song that her friend was listening to, and she asked me about it. Um, NBA Young Boy, mm-hmm. and she was asking me if if I felt that he was glorifying this drug culture that he was in. And um, I said he. I listened to the song, and I was familiar with it. But I asked her. I said, could it be that um, in the male dominated, um, misogynistic environment he grew up in? He doesn't even have the liberty to reminisce on when things were innocent in his life because if you relish in your innocence, you're soft. Yep. And the whole world is telling you, be strong, be hard. But a male-dominated, misogynistic uh, environment is dictating what manhood looks like to him. So, you know, when you get, you know, kids from inner city, wherever it is, and that's what's dictating what manhood looks like, um, you're going to have some very... Um, catastrophic you know responses that's a powerful point early um oftentimes i think we judge people even ourselves without questioning the inputs that we have about our identity you know nba young boy jay-z whomever we all have forces that are influencing how we understand our manhood our personhood and thus our identity and how we understand our identity shapes how we show up in the world and so until we can really interrogate those inputs we are just casting judgment blindly and unfairly. And so I love that you were able to help her tease out the reasons behind uh, the way the NBA young boy shows up in the world. And I love, I I just love that you were able to do that. As we think about bringing this episode to a close, one of the ways I like to end these shows is to give my guests a chance to ask me a question about my life. And so I'm wondering, as we have talked for nearly half an hour now, have there been any questions that have come up for you that you'd like to ask me? Yeah. Um, so you you obviously said that there's been some some changes and, and they're fairly new with co-parenting and things like that. Mm-hmm. What is your is, is it your son or daughter? Son. What is it? What is it that you want for him um, that may be different from what you had for yourself? I want my son to grow up knowing and believing in the depths of his being that he's enough and that he has everything he needs within him. Um, we gave him the middle name Truth so that he would have a virtue to fall back on uh, whenever life felt too chaotic. You know, I wanted him to know that the truth is always embedded within him. He doesn't have to seek it out anywhere else. He just has to tap in and get to know himself and he can find the truth that he's seeking. Um, and so as I think about how I grew up, as I think about how I've processed my own trauma and I'm still processing it, I'm aware of how insecure I feel at times. I'm aware at how much work I have to put in just to to like my own skin, to appreciate and respect my body, um, to appreciate all the emotions that I feel, whether I'm depressed or super happy. And I want him to have to work half as hard to just be comfortable with who he is and to feel secure uh, with who he is and how he exists in the world. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. And I, I think that's what we all want. We want um, better and faster <laughs> for yes. our kids, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, great question. And as we close out this interview, I'm wondering if, um, as you reflect on this idea of processing through trauma, of continually healing, of doing an autopsy, there's a way you could summarize what you want the audience to know, maybe specifically or especially young young black men and women. Um, what would you like to impart to them in terms of doing these self-autopsies autopsies and processing through our own trauma? Sure. 
So the word process, the working definition I learned years ago is, it's a series of operations that produce a finished product. Mm -hmm. Series of, so it's not just one thing, you know, and that's when we say, man, I've, I've gone through two years of therapy and, and counseling and now it seems like I'm at another, you know, you know, point where I've hit a hard, or, you know, a real sensitive spot. That's good. That's because it's a series of operations that's going to produce that finished product in your life. I love that. That is wonderful. And so being able to look at all that we're going through as another operation in the process towards this finished product, towards our whole selves becoming manifested in the world. Absolutely. It's not that something's wrong. It's just that so much is right. And you have to go through this. You have to go through a delayering so that you can get down to the core of what's really going to strengthen you. Mm, I love that. Uh, Early, thank you for sharing your, your wisdom here today. If people want to uh, reach out to you or learn more about you, what are the best ways for them to do that? Well, um, I would say Instagram, uh, early underscore empowers, um, Facebook, early Jack, life coach, early Jackson, and then Twitter is Mr. Underscore empowerment. And when does the next episode of the podcast you host with Sharice come out? There will be a new episode at the end of September. That's going to be debuting in our season three full blown. It's going to be called a, a tough conversations with America, where we're going to be just having some conversations about. Uh, some things that we take for granted, some of the real intimate conversations we have with some of our friends who are not people of color and us navigating those uh, boundaries and and new uh, kind of uh, new awakening in some of our friends' lives on, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, protesting um, and all that good stuff. Cannot wait for it. That is awesome. If y'all haven't checked out their podcast, be sure to check it out, An Inconvenient Truth with Early and Sharice. Thanks again for joining me, Early. I've loved having you on here, uh, and I hope we can do this again sometime. We will, man. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you appreciated my guest, Early Jackson, and want to know more about his coaching practice, or if you want to check out the podcast he has with his wife and my sister, Sharice, you can check out the links for those in the episode description. The podcast, by the way, is called The Inconvenient Truth with Sharice and Early, and season three should be coming out this week. So please check that out. They do a great job of dialoguing about important topics and pressing issues for our nation. So check them out. I think you'll enjoy it. Finally, I hope that you are able to remember that life and healing and growth, they're all processes, meaning we're never going to stop doing it. We're never going to stop healing. We're never going to stop growing. And the more we do it, the longer we do it, the more there is to unpack, the more layers there are to peel back. And I know that can get frustrating. I know that can get discouraging. I know it can feel exhausting. But please keep doing that work. You are better for it. The people you love are better for it. And the world is better for it. So even though it gets tiring, know that you have a fellow co-laborer here with you on the other side of this microphone who himself gets exhausted, who gets tired, who gets frustrated that the work just won't end. But I'm also very grateful that I can continue to do it and continue to show up as more and more of my authentic self. And I hope that you can do the same. Once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper.